2: That's right. It's time, Marcus, for us to help them defeat the Bro, negative you fire insurgency. Me up, man. In their you lives. fire me up. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's roll. Let's roll. Marcus. Yes, sir. I, I, I just got a question for you. Send it. All right. Now, I know you've been interviewed by a truckload of people out there. Yes, right? sir really amazing incredible people across the board across the board all awesome you and you become friends with a bunch of them but i gotta tell you the person that's coming on today dude she is a dynamo bro yeah. and i am super fired up to hear what this woman's gonna say
1: right she, okay. she was she was one of, in the beginning she was gonna be my first really yeah. she was
2: gonna be your first interview huh
1: I've always wanted to say that on the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's great, man. I was fired up about it. I wish uh, that it didn't go down. I didn't get a chance to uh, link up with her in interview. She's on a flight back from South Africa, man. But she is something else. What? I mean, you on top, uh, you know, on top of uh, being uh, a correspondent with us and everybody else, man. Just the things that she's done, and, and you got to hand it to those that really get out there in it and report oh, on it, not yeah. reporting it from somewhere else or hearing it from somebody else. I mean, coming coming live at you.
2: I mean she's done reports from Haditha, you know what was going on in Haditha. She was embedded in Afghanistan with team guys for a bunch of time. I mean she she's been around. I'll talk I talked mean, to the guys that were there with her, man. They said straight up, man, good to go. She was squared away. Yeah, squared away. That's cool, man. Well, before we get to bringing her on, you know, we it, welcome to the Team Never Quit podcast. Uh it, you know, obviously if this is your first show, we're super stoked. You you got to know that it's me and Marcus. It's our mission to help you understand where the never quit mindset is in your soul, right? And, and where it f- functions in you, where, how to ignite the fire in your gut. So you too can go out there and become a legendary in your own world, right? Cause great stories, ignite legends. That's why we do this podcast and we do it by bringing on incredible people from all different walks of life, right? I mean, think of, think of who we've had on I Everywhere. mean, from athletes to journalists to politicians, To to regular folk, I mean the
1: never quit stories are different, but the how they got through it's the same. It really, we're starting to see that, aren't we? That there is didn't take us long to start seeing those the common common thread in the
2: human condition that you too possess your wealth because we're brought up in it. We're all brought up in the same
1: condition, correct? Almost. I'm willing to. I mean, have that's theory available to you. In this world, it's I mean, it's, kind of, it's all available to you. Everything that they had, that we, all the people we bring on here, that they started with, the same thing you can start with. Exactly. And that's what makes
2: it so special. If you don't know much about us, you want to learn more, please go visit our website at teamneverquit.com forward slash podcast. That's teamneverquit.com forward slash podcast. Check out all our awesome shows. And then also, please, on your, on your mobile phone, subscribe to us on iTunes Podcasts. Uh, and then you'll have us on demand, man. You literally, uh, morning, noon, or night, and you're driving in and from work, at work, uh, working out, on a run, on a bike. We're there. We're there we're with there. you. <laughs> we're there telling you these great stories. <laughs> no matter what you're doing, we brought somebody on here to tell you how to <laughs> how to get through it, especially if you're in the rabbit hole, man. We're there for you. And if you could, it'd be great if you write a little review for our podcast, because we're we're sure... Blessed to have all the people that are listening right now, all right? So now what we're going to do is we're going to read a historical story, all right? And the historical story we're going to talk about right now is a guy by the name of Ernie Pyle. So Ernie Pyle was uh, uh, born in Indiana in 1900. He was joined the United States Naval Reserve in World War I at age 17. He served three months of active duty until the war ended. And thirty-two Powell was managing editor of the Washington Daily News, but he he wasn't able to write, so he quit. You know, he he moved forward, and and finally, when World War II happened, Powell became a war correspondent to apply his intimate style of combat reporting. He didn't do the, the typical reporting like recounting movements and activities of generals or anything like that. What he did is he got into the the mind and the life of the common soldier. He told the real story, and he's quoted as saying this. Their life consisted wholly and solely of war, for they were and always had been frontline infantrymen. They survived because their fates were kind to them, certainly, but also because they had become hard and immensely wise and animal like ways of self-preservation. This everyman approach won him the Pulitzer Prize of Writing. Pyle wrote a column in 44 in order to fight for soldiers to get combat pay, which is awesome. God bless you for doing it. Still be, get, we still get it, brother. Yeah, thank you for <laughs> it. It was called the Ernie Pyle Bill. When Pyle relocated after the Allied nor, uh, landing in Normandy, he wrote, The best way I can deserve, describe this vast armada and frantic urgency of traffic is to suggest that you visualize New York City on its busiest day of the year and then just enlarge that scene until it takes in all the ocean the human eye can reach, clear around the horizon and over the horizon. There are dozens of times that many. It's pretty, you know, pretty amazing thing, you know, and the fact that Powell was almost nearly killed after that, but he kept going and he kept writing until all the way through uh, to where he almost, you know, he got what was called uh, a war neurosis. And he had to head home for a little while to New Mexico after the, uh, the, the European uh, conflict ended, but that didn't stop him. He kept going and he went into Iwo Jima with the army's 335th. Unfortunately, Ernie met his maker there. He got hit by a round straight in the temple that killed him instantly. Now, the men of the Army unit he was covering erected a monument, which still stands at the site of his death. Its inscription reads, At this spot, the 77th Infantry Division lost a buddy, Ernie Pyle, 18 April 1945. Pyle's remains were were, uh, re-interned at the Army Cemetery in Okinawa and later at the National Memorial Cemetery in the Pacific in Honolulu. In 1983, he was awarded a Purple Heart, a rare honor for a civilian. Now, what what makes this guy so special? Into well, a lot,
1: he's not a civilian.
2: I like where your head's at.
1: You know what I mean?
0: Why? I mean, he's no. a soldier.
1: Why? He found out what he was great at, and obviously, being in the military and fighting wars need that part of it, right? Yeah, that's part of being a soldier. Somebody has to do it. He was great at it.
2: What's interesting to this though is is what makes a guy. Want to go, or a woman for that matter, because we got one coming on, yeah. but makes them want to run into a combat environment to tell a story. Same or, thing that makes or, us do it. That's what I'm saying.
1: He's a soldier. He, you know, just because he didn't get a chance, they didn't hand it out. They do that to a lot of guys. Guys don't be, can't, can't become SEALs. Right. They find something else to do in the military. Right. And that's that's his love of country and love of service with them guys. That's how he protected them. That's that was his service and commitment to them, right? Because we all, everybody always says, Well, I just carried a camera. Well, did, I mean, you can look at it both ways. Well, he covered down on that. He was doing what he was supposed to do. Did you want him carrying a rifle? I mean, I would imagine he backed a lot of them guys. There's no way he didn't have to pick up a rifle out there and but and, and throw some rounds downrange. Absolutely. Just no way that didn't happen.
2: Not that bad. So
1: I mean, and to die in he died in combat. Yeah. He, he died in combat, and didn't have a damn rifle in his hand
2: how many think of the balls and taste around there with a damn camera when they're shooting at you think about that man you know what i mean people are like hey
1: was guy oh he he brought a damn camera well i mean hell
2: i would bring everything i could including the kitchen sink if if it jumped
1: off you know what i mean
2: (laughs) that's awesome man i and i just love the fact that he was so passionate to tell you know the guy's stories right the stories that that made the difference. Uh, uh, you know, these uh, in, in a lot of cases, he was telling stories that really, you know, that kept people focused and in the war but, and committed. Well,
1: the biggest compliment he had was when his buddies did that, said that about him and erected that statue, right? So if they looked at him as one of the boys, then he was right. It's not any, any other anybody else who wasn't there and comment. They don't have, they don't have anything to say because I mean, the guys obviously soaked him in and, and he became one of them. And that's 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 what we do.
2: Well, I mean, you know what I'm talking about? I agree. I agree. You know, you... you everybody so,
1: flies the helicopters, drops the bombs. Everyone thinks everybody else has a cooler job. Everybody else is, wants to do the best they can at their job. And the fact that he goes in with that and everyone looks at him as a journalist and not a war fighter in the beginning has got
2: to be tough. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely tough. So one of the one of the cool things is, I think, is that when we got this, you know, our guest coming on, she's doing the same thing, man, in the modern era. She's the one that's coming on. she's the one that's out there. She's embedding with you know our brothers she's she's going to the hot spots around the world. I mean you know this this she you know when one of the cool stories that I love is that you know days after September eleventh She asked the clerk at the Russian embassy in London to give her a visa to travel to Afghanistan. And she was so tenacious that while in Afghanistan working for GMTV, she infiltrated the American-British-backed Northern Alliance and interviewed their commander, General Babajan, at Bagram Air Base. Man, this is right off the bat, man. That's what she – because she had such a strong connection to want to tell that story. It's pretty remarkable, if you ask me. And she's gone on to become – you know one of the biggest news correspondents for cbs she's a uh, uh, one of the top performers at oh
1: end. she's on tv you watch
2: well she's on 60 minutes yeah, she, you in watch. my opinion she's one of the best doesn't matter what. what she's one
1: of the ones that just transcends all that whatever show she's on you're gonna watch it
2: absolutely so what do you say without further ado we bring on laura logan Marcus man I'll tell you what I've been super fired up for this one for for a bunch of time now and and when she's on we got her here we got her pinned down one of the best journalists that is living out there today someone that I know you know is is near and dear to our hearts because yeah, the great piece she did on us right, right
1: she's tied into our community
2: she is tied into our community and that's what I love about it so Laura Logan welcome to the TNQ podcast
3: thank you very much it's a uh... Kind of crazy to be being interviewed by Marcus, since I tried to interview him for a long time. I know. So I was going
1: to get into that. Unsuccessfully,
3: I, I want to add.
1: <laughs> I, I had just come out of the hospital. I was at home. And you, where were you coming from? South Africa. I think she's coming yes, from South I was Africa. Born or and like.
3: raised in South Africa, right? On the coast,
1: <laughs> right? And then she was coming over, and then the admiral called, and something got tied around and shifted, and then I was like, "Man, but uh, I'm sorry about that." By the way, standing up. <laughs> I never had the opportunity to say it, to apologize to you formally, and this is where I'm going to do that. I apologize to a lady for standing her up and uh, never having again.
2: I love it. You don't hear that often. <laughs> Let's just get that out of the way. <laughs> I love it. All right, all right, Laura, what we do is we always start out our guests with a mad minute, and that's to, you know, being frogmen, we like to get warmed up for everything we do. We like to, you know, exercise our minds, our bodies, our souls, the whole deal. So what we're going to do is Marcus and I are going to fire some fun, you know, 50 calor caliber questions right at you just to warm up and get you prepped for the main part of the interview are you ready for that
3: yes you can't scare me just so you know uh, okay.
2: well well i'll tell you what you come jumping out of an airplane at 25000 feet in the middle of the night on oxygen it might change
1: i'm scared of that
3: <laughs> well you know that's true i did uh, i did cheat and spend 2 months on operations with Navy SEALs in southern Afghanistan, but boom. I never parachuted out of a plane. That's true. That's our worst that, That's our way, that way of going boom. You can't
2: <laughs> well, well. Here, here's the deal. I, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll revoke my statement, Laura, because spending two weeks with SEALs is the scariest mm. thing in the world. Because of mm. how, how, mm. across the old frog man has got to be the most difficult human being on mm. the planet. <laughs>
3: I lived with Afghan soldiers for three months when they were at war with the Taliban. And it was right towards, you know, it was after many years of war, and there was nothing in that country. So if you can survive that, you can survive just about anything. Yes,
2: you can. Amen. All right, so the first question in the Mad Minute is, who do you prefer, the Beatles, Rolling Stones, or Led Zeppelin?
3: Mm, Let me see you know, that you chose a tough one because I like all of them. Um, I would have to say Led Zeppelin is kind of like the coolest. Rolling Stones is for the worst moments of your, uh, of your teenage <laughs> Write years. Write this down. And the Beatles is, <laughs> the Beatles, you know, someone asked me my favorite Rolling Stones song, and I said Beast of Burden, which should tell you something about, about me. Um, yeah. And the Beatles, you know, that was legendary growing up, but that now seems so tame.
2: Oh, it's totally tamed now. comparatively. I mean, when you think about 60s and 70s, now that was the cutting edge of the countercultural revolution. Exactly. But now they don't even handle, you know, you, you throw out Those Nirvana. the crazies out there. You know, right. Not, Hey, bro, Nirvana's old now, bud, just so you know that. No, I'm just saying that they
1: changed the tide of music.
2: Check, Roger. All right, go ahead, Marcus. You're next. <laughs> Where
1: did we go on that?
2: I don't know. Down oh, the rabbit hole. Man,
1: good Lord. All right, uh, favorite Superhero
3: favorite superhero god you're going to hate me for this but i got to tell you i i i'm in love with captain america
2: yeah, uh, yeah. Huh. <laughs> but, perfect <laughs> answer <laughs> all right next question if you had a if you if there was a dream career that you wanted to do other than what you're doing now what would it be
3: well that's a that's an interesting question a dream career i once thought i wanted to be a veterinarian but I fainted when the vet made me take a scalpel and slice open the cat, I was only twelve. Though, in my defense, um, a dream career. You know, I always wanted to be a Charlie's Angel. That, that, that's, that's
1: awesome. That's what I want to hear.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's fact, me up. in my mind, I am. Still a Charlie's
2: angel. Now you're talking. Uh,
1: we're now at you're talking. Minutes you're
0: minutes
2: my, to you're added to the list. <laughs> Did <laughs> you hear it? She uh-huh. said sixty minutes is just her cover. I love right. it. yeah absolutely.
1: Love it. All right, all right. Uh Princess uh Princess Bride or Indiana Jones?
3: Oh, Indiana Jones! Come on, that's, that's not her. even. You can't yeah. put those two in the same sentence. You'd be well, surprised. Uh, we had a, some I wacky answers from people. The, uh,
2: yeah. We had we had you know Alan West on a while back, and, and he threw out some crazy answer to one of those. We're like, where did that come from? So we never know. <laughs> you got to put them out there. All right, all right. So here, <laughs> if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Uh, change one. Th-
3: you know, honestly, the thing I would change is I I can't stand that some people have to struggle all their lives, and they never catch a break. Like, I've been through hard times in my life, but I always know I'm coming out the other side, and it's going to be pretty good. I mean, you know, with a few exceptions, like when, when someone you love dies, it's never better on the other side of that. But, That's true. Um, I, I just I just think it's just so not fair that you can be... You can be a kid that grows up without uh you know any of the advantages that so many of us have, and you struggle your whole life, you work three jobs, and you never get that break you know so oh, yeah. and I find it like especially if I know if there's a kid waking up on Christmas morning who's discovering there's no Santa Claus because there's no presents, and his parents have to fill him in on reality much sooner than than any kid should ever have to learn those lessons like that's my heart I hate people to be in pain. And I, I, I just think there should always, be some, should always be something on the other end of that that makes it okay. Um, wow. I think you can handle anything when you know that, that things are going to be better on the other side. Sure. And I know there are people, you know, when I got my first job at 60 Minutes, one of my friends said to me, you're, you're very lucky. And I said, hey, I, you know, I worked for this since I was 17 years old. You know, I worked hard for this. And he said, Laura, people work hard their whole lives and they never get an opportunity like that. And that mm-hmm. was what I needed to hear because he was right. You know, people work hard their whole life. When, when my mother was dying uh, and my nanny uh, from growing up in South Africa got cancer, I would take her to the hospital for, uh, chemo, for radiation and, she, and chemotherapy, and she her day was the same day of the week as the pediatric chemotherapy. And there would be women who would walk from the townships would have no shoes, would have baby strapped to their back, I knew how they were living, I knew they had no electricity, I knew if they were lucky for it, they didn't have a toilet in their, in their house, they would have a shack with a toilet outside, and I would think, you're going through all of that, you're probably working two jobs, and you have a child that has cancer. Oh okay? my like, God. I can't even, you know, I can't even fathom how hard that is. So that's my heartache is for, for people like that. I just make I just want to make everything better.
2: Well, that that's pretty awesome. I, I don't think we've had a better answer than that to that question. So, we really appreciate. It. I mean, you know, one of the things that I, I think a lot of times with you know guys in our world, we you know we get so front sight focused on 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 you know going after the bad guys that we we miss those kids that are in those compounds. And I you know I remember my whole first trip to Afghanistan in the summer '02 with Team One. You know, I didn't see any of that. But my second trip in in the fall of '05 with Blackwater, you know, I, I it hit me that those children and the struggle they're under, and and it, it helped me change my life and to try and create some kind of goodness for kids to inspire them that if they do stay in the fight, that eventually, you know, they'll 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 feel some success at least in themselves. So, man, that's a that's a great story. Let's you know, let's just that, those are great answers, Madman. Let's just jump right into this because. You know, I, I think there's so much more that we can, you know, get from from you and the depth of your experience in life, Laura. So, what is your greatest never quit story?
3: You know, probably the one that's easiest for people to understand is, you know, when I was in Tahrir Square in Egypt when I was attacked by a mob of two to three hundred men, and um, I, you know, at the beginning of that assault, it was a, a, a the sexual part of it with what I was fighting. You know, when you feel um, at men you don't know with your hands between your legs and tearing your clothes open and, and uh, doing all the things that they were doing to me, I was fighting to protect myself from that. You know, I was trying to get their hands off. I was trying to I was trying to stop the, the physical sexual assault and the humiliation. And I wasted a lot of my strength on that because, you know, by the time they're tearing at your insides, Mm-hmm. you know, um, and trying to tear your breast off your body and, and um, your clothes are in shreds around your ankles and, and you can feel the air on your skin and you're naked, there's nothing left of your dignity at that point. Um, and mm-hmm. so uh, what I realized in that moment as I started, they were beating us and uh, beating myself and my security guy, Ray Jackson, um, and I only knew what was happening really because Ray was telling me all the time and he told me to So I had hold of him with one hand, my right hand, I had hold of his shirt, and he kept saying two things to me. Uh, Laura, he said, don't let go, because if you let go of me, you're going to die. And and I knew he desperately wanted to not lose hold of me. Um, And the other thing he kept saying was, stay on your feet, you know, because every time I went down... Um, I knew I had to fight to get back on my feet, and I was so grateful for the fact that many, many, many years ago and early on in my career, someone said to me, Jeff Newton, uh, one of my best friends said to me, you know, never show up any, in any shithole with bad footwear because well. that's the first thing anyone's going to look at you know, you roll up to a base and you got uh, shitty footwear. No, you know, these guys aren't taking you seriously. And that was great advice. Can I tell you, I thought about that in that square when I was fighting for my life because my boots, um, I, kept, I kept fighting to get back on my feet. And for most of the time I could. But by the last time I was, I was done, I'd lost Ray at that point and I couldn't hold on to him anymore and, and I was down and I couldn't get up again. But when I lost Ray... I thought, oh, my God, like, this is it. I'm actually not a Charlie's angel, <laughs>
0: yeah.
3: and uh, I don't have any, I don't have any yeah, more. <laughs> I can do nothing in this, in this mob. I, this is it. I'm going to die with these filthy, miserable men all over me in this filthy street, in this filthy square, and it's a, it's a horrible death. And I, I say that because I am a person who's always tried to be very honest with myself. You know, we all like to delude ourselves every now and then, and most people lie to themselves most of their lives. But the one thing that I try to do is to, I, that keeps me grounded if I know I'm as honest with myself as I can be, and I, I needed to look my reality square in the face. And when I lost Ray, I just felt the adrenaline go out of my body. And anyone who's ever, who's ever lived with, you know, in a life where they've known what it means to feel the most adrenaline that your body can manufacture in one single moment and then have it leave you in one single moment, you got to know what that feels like. It can break you. And I gave up. That was it. I was done. I was like, okay, you truly are not coming out of this. You're done. I mean, I was struggling to breathe at that point. I was in a lot of pain. And uh, and I was taking, you know, uh, um, injuries to my body, like they would, my joints were distended at that point. My insides were torn. And so um, I, and I, and the first thing I thought of when I gave up was my, my children. My daughter was about 10 months old at the time. My son is a year and two months older than her. So he was, he was two, just two. And, um, and I thought of them and I thought, oh my God, like I can't believe I gave up on them at all. Right? How could you do right. that as a mother? Yep. And I, I made the decision in my head. I said, when they read about how I died, they're going to know that their mother died fighting. And that's when I started to fight to breathe and fight for my life. I gave up on the sexual assault. I gave up on that, and I just was fighting for air and for breath. You know, before that, one guy was really close to me, and I, I bit his face nice. um, just to give something back. Uh. To them, but I realized that I needed every bit of strength that I had just to keep breathing. Because once you know that's gone, it doesn't take very long for the for the end. And uh, and, and so honestly, the I guess in that moment, the hardest fight. although all these years later, it's easy to it's easy to forget how hard that was. But in that moment, um, fighting for some kind of uh, of dignity, something something honorable. That my children could cling to, years later when they learned about this, that was what I fought for in that moment.
2: Wow, that's that's amazing. And and one of the things that, you know, I, I when I hear you tell that story and how powerful that that transitional moment was, was, was it really just a was it a, a brief moment that your kids popped into your head, or or were you truly focused and you could hear their voices, you could. You could, you know, smell, you know, your newborn, which is so powerful. Was it something in depth like that, or was it merely just, no. you know?
3: The, what? Yeah, it, no, it's just there. It's just a thought. I mean, you, you have to understand there's two things happening to you at the same time. You know, one is the physical reality of what's happening to you. So your brain is processing all of that. And then on the, at the same time, you're, you're thinking about everything. You're, you're, you know, you kick into survival mode because I'm not a person, okay, I'd, I've i been in, in many situations I've been blown up in i uh, I'd hit a double anti-tank mine in an unarmored vehicle days before, this was the days before they even had Ahmed Humvees right. on the battlefield. Oh, they I remember right those days. The, yeah. So when we, when we hit that, that was a different kind of thing because that, you know, I've just been in a, a massive explosion and I, and I see white and everything is sort of slowed down and I'm disassociated from reality. This was not the same thing. This was one of those things where I can tell you every hand wow. that was on me I could feel. And I didn't really know, like Ray would say to me, they're beating us with uh with their hands, they're beating us with flagpoles, they have sticks, they're stealing out passports, they're doing you know, he could process all of that. I was just fighting to stay on my feet and And, and, you know, in the beginning, fighting to sort of try and keep their hands away and then giving up on all of that. But I even remember, I even remember the moment, you know, when they tore my shirt open and when they tore my bra open and when they tore my panties open. I mean, I could hear those things. I could hear the stitches giving way. I could feel the air on my skin. I could, uh, so it wasn't one of those things where I was, you know, reliving my whole life and having flashbacks and, and nothing slowed down for me. Every single moment was painfully lived and that was also one of the things you know you always think well somehow you're not going to be conscious towards the end but i was conscious all the way
2: through wow that's that's intense i mean no, i just, just i mean
1: that's level of becoming an animal what that is i mean when you start to feel every part of your body and everything that was is normal on you that that would you would use to survive use for a weapon right right your mouth your hands, your, hand, your whatever when it's you're a primal
2: instinct of sure. survival everything's
1: yeah. so heightened so when you hear the stitches and in, in the and her panties and stuff like that breaking that's all her transforming into that all right and then
2: all you need and all
1: anything needs in its mind to survive is one thing one thought i mean that's what
2: is that what you did
1: yeah but I, we were also trained to do that i mean right. there's levels of that i right. mean i didn't have to go as deep as she did kind of deal uh, uh, i mean maybe i shouldn't say that our levels are the same but uh and we've both been down deep in the rabbit's hole. We'll both handle that stuff the same way, but differently. Right. Kind of deal. And um,
3: uh, well, you know, uh, Mark, it's powerful
1: said, to come back out of it. I'm sorry.
3: Well, and listening to your story, I imagine, I mean, you knew that you were outnumbered and surrounded. It was going to take a miracle, right? It was some, some kind of miracle. To, well, I also went in there ready. out of that situation.
1: You know, I went in there ready for to fight. I mean, I I I was geared for that and prepped for that. When 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 you and, and I'm going to tell you something, when I became, when I came from being the hunter to being hunted, it was my reality check.
2: Yeah, that's what she was talking about that reality of
1: right. where and, you and are. then then, you, then that stuff that goes in your head is the stuff that you've been taught. I mean, what you're supposed to worry about. And then I I don't know if you did this or not, but eventually you stopped worrying about where the hands were and then it's kind of like, "All right, man, what let's get past this" What I need to survive. Yeah. And once you hit that, that point right. right there, man, that's, that's, uh, that, that's as low as you can go, but that is as hard as you can go. And that's what keeps you alive, that, and that's called will. I mean, I think we try to label it like that. No, we've
2: I, talked about it extensively. We've had a lot of amazing guests that have t- had hit, hit those points, and it's that will. And what is the ignition point of that will? Right and for well, you, what, you talk about training, but for— And, and kids, but, cause let, I didn't have kids. You right. know what I'm talking about? And yeah. teammates
1: and whatever it is that fires that battery— Right. Inside of you that makes you want to go out and do the things that we do, well then that's also the things that protect you when you get into those hard spots. Am I making sense? I, no, you're making
2: I, total I, sense. So and the question I have for you now, Laura, is is after you had that ignition point of your children, now you had to begin to try and formulate thoughts and 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 an action and a focus to get to that next break contact or that next moment where you felt a new energy, a new life come in. Tell us about that process.
3: Well, I had made I had made peace with the fact that there was nothing that I could physically do to get myself out of that situation. If we if I had been dragged into a, you know, people think of this square as being like just an open square, but it's not. It's got it's got roads running through it and drains and fences and and it's very uneven ground. Um, and and I got dragged into a part where I was kind of just the mob was out of control. So. It it didn't intend to, but we were pressed against the fence and on the, you know, and, and it, against some Egyptian women and children. So we kind of, the last time I went down, I was dragged and, um, and it just happened to be that because there was no control, we ended up in this, in this place. And at that point, really, my main focus was, I've been I was taking my last breath. Wow. And if we, if we hadn't fallen into where we were, if I hadn't been dragged into that spot where there was nowhere else for the mob to go, and because there were Egyptian women and children there, you know, there were people that jumped up and sort of put themselves between the women and children and and the mob, and that meant that me, you know, I was just almost by default caught up in that. Um, If that hadn't happened, I was dead. I mean, I couldn't actually breathe at that moment. I remember them pouring, these women pouring water on me and uh, it took a while for me to be able to speak. And, and at that point, I'm thinking, oh, my God, is there a chance that I could actually make it out of here? But, at, you know, the other thing that is very hard to recapture is the fear. I mean, I, I right. experienced a level of terror because that mob was right there. They're, they're not. It's not even the physical distance from you, although, although they're half a foot away from you. It's not just that. It's the fact that, these people, these women and children, they can't stop you. They can't stop this mob if they come. they All they have to do is reach forward and drag you back. You know? Got you and right back really, out of that, yeah.
2: What, and
1: that's, that's the thing that, that right, kind of what, what really kept
3: is, me alive is that they didn't want a dead American journalist on their hands. Uh, you know, a terrified, damaged one was, was good enough. And and wow. really the moment where I thought that I was that I was done for when, when I got separated from Ray, it took me years thinking back on this to actually understand that I think that's the moment that saved me because Ray was the only one who knew how bad it was. He was the only one who actually saw what they did to me. And when he when as soon as they tore him off me, they didn't care about him. And he fought his way through the crowd and got the soldiers to come and find me and, and do something. And if it weren't for that, if the soldiers hadn't gotten to me before the mob could drag me back in, I might, you know I probably would not be alive. Wow.
1: Well, I mean, I, I, it's kinda, I understand all that. And I, I figured you were going to say that when Rhett was asking that question. See, there's a level that you get to all, when you strip everything away that, that you don't think about. Anything else besides staying alive, the f- and that's the thing. I mean, there is no, there is nothing else. It's just the staying alive part. And then,
2: are you? What do you again. mean? So you're not, say, you're not saying you're calculating a plan. You're not. There's no, once
1: you get to that point, to where, the, yeah, there's no plan. There is just okay. Now let's there's just no stay alive.
3: There's no plan. You're so screwed. There's no plan that's going to get you out of there. It's only an act of God that's getting you out.
1: When it I mean that's when it completely falls apart. And then what happens is the fear of the it's the unknown and then the violence that's the that's that's being thrown on you. and and then obviously, Oh, that's that kind of that mind wash is out. It's survival mode. But then when you when she said she was coming back to it, it's the reality. Like, okay, well, I'm still in the same spot that caused me to go to that place. And the only calming thing, was she was saying with those Egyptian women, and everything, and knowing that they could still get overrun, it's it's the humanity part that they're willing to just sit there and just stand there and not let anything happen. Whatever it is, any kind right. of form of kindness, whether it just be stand there and not spitting on me when the people that are spitting on me. You're standing right there, right? And that's the break. It's the kindness. It, 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 you want to talk about a mental punch? I mean, you're dying. The people who cause that are right there, and the people who are some kind of, I mean, trying hope. to have hope are, are standing right there, and then you're caught right, you're the you're the catalyst for all that. And it's it's kind of one of them deals where it's a, man, I don't even know what it's called. I mean, people call it a lightning spirit. Well, she,
2: she just called it an act of God. And yeah, that, well, that's I mean, that's what I'm saying. There's different things. Right. Vir-
1: or act of God. I mean, exactly. But I'm saying everyone has a different word for it. But the, the feeling and and what she was describing, I know exactly what that feels like kind of deal. Uh,
2: well, that's what's so interesting about you know this conversation and with the two of you is, is in that moment where all of a sudden there was the the absolute terror or fear kind of, you know, it didn't disappear. It was still very palpable and there and and breathing down both of your necks in that moment. But that moment when all of a sudden, oh, there's a chance. And, and, and yeah. what is that? What, does the, what, what did that do for you in that moment, Laura?
3: Well, you see, that's the, uh, that's the thing is until that moment when, I, when there was suddenly space between me and the mob, even though it wasn't a lot, but there was space enough for me to try and breathe. So the first thing I had to do was to breathe. And that was not – that didn't just happen it took a while for me to even be able to get air back into my lungs because, really, I was in the advanced stage. I mean, I was almost dead. So uh, first I had to breathe, and the moment I could breathe, now my mind is free to think about escape, right? Right. Have, right. and survival, and my chances of survival. And, and again, I'm very realistic with myself, and I know that it's going to take nothing. And honestly, I'm, you know, the only word I can form is army, because I know my only chance, my only shot out of there is the army. And the woman, <laughs> the woman didn't understand me. And I remember oh, even thinking to myself, oh my God, all these people in Egypt who speak English, and I got one who can't, who doesn't <laughs> even know what army is, because it sounds... The word is probably not that different. Anyway, um, I remember uh, that when the soldier fought his way, they, there's a line of soldiers kind of fought their way through the mob. And, and when, I, when I say fought, they had batons, and they were smashing people to get through, to get to me. So that should give you an idea. This is not like the the, the board is parting, you know. Right. Um, and, and when they got to me, because I was naked, they wouldn't touch me and and then the soldiers, and there's one soldier, right? Because they formed like a line to get through. they wasn't they couldn't walk through, only one could get through, and then he's talking to one behind him, and they disappear, and it closes again, and it's the mob, and then uh they come back. I don't know how long it took, I don't think all that long just a few minutes, and they've got a black shador, which is, you know, the old traditional robes that cover you from head to toe. And they put that, they threw that to the women, and the women put that over me, and then they picked me up. But they still had to use batons to beat the mob back and get me through all those people. And that's when my Egyptian driver, Shafiq, came running to the side of the square by a tank, and he he took me in his arms and took me on a little alleyway off the square. But honestly, in, in the, then as your um, struggle for survival, because now I'm breathing normally, as that recedes, it's filled. That void is filled with fear, just with terror. Again, that, the, that, uh, the,
2: the terror I mean, comes back.
3: Paralyzing fear. Yeah. Wow. And all I wanted to do was get away from there. And, and honestly, I called my husband when I got into this alleyway off the square and my, my producer found me and... All I could say to him, I couldn't even find the words to describe it. You know, if I'd been shot, it would have been easy because they would have seen I was shot. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had to say anything, but I'm covered now. I disappear. I have this black chador over me. They can't see anything, and I, and I just kept saying, you can't imagine what they did to me because I you don't know how to find the words to describe it. And, uh, and he gave me a phone, and my husband said that when he answered the phone, all he heard was the screams of an animal. And I thought I was explaining myself perfectly. Oh, my gosh.
2: <laughs> I've wow. just been
3: raped by a mob. I'm almost dead. <laughs> that's yeah. what I thought I was saying. But and you were just said, screaming. What? Yeah. And he said it was like an animal. It was like an animal screaming. And he couldn't make out a single word.
2: Wow. that That's that's amazing and and where your brain goes and where fear can how it can override you know all you know and your entire prefrontal cortex it can consume you in such a way and and that's the real power of fear and and what's just amazing is that as you come through and you're coming out and you're you're covered head to toe and that's the really kind of interesting part to me is here, you've just been violated in, in all these different ways, on all these different levels. But now, all of a sudden, you're covered and coated. It's almost like nobody... W- so they didn't have to acknowledge what just happened. It did when At any point, did anger come back into your, your mind at all? Did you start letting yourself get anger? Did you find that power source? Or did you just... you no. know Did you stay in that no. fear? I
3: never... I can honestly tell you to this day, I've never felt one ounce of anger I, that's like a waste of time to me wow. i mean for, uh, the other the thing about the the fear is that you know they're having conversations with the egyptian military and someone says we should walk back to the hotel and and i am out of my mind hysterical thinking you, you don't understand this mob they can come at any moment i just want to put distance between myself and there and and clearly no one really understands except you know ray and they right. eventually, the Egyptians got this tiny little car and we're piling in, you know, my cameraman, my producer, there was security guy. And the young Egyptian guy, they've got a, a couple of soldiers with us. The young Egyptian fixer that we hired to work with us, they started to pull off without him. And he was with me. He was the one who heard them saying, let's take your pants off, let's do this or let's do that. And he just started vomiting into the ground. That's you oh,
2: know, my how
3: terrified he was. And I screamed. I don't even think I was coherent, and we just grabbed him by the shirt, and we dragged him in and lay him on top of us, Um, because we were in in this little jeep, little army jeep, and drove back to the hotel like that, and when we got there, the Egyptian doctor, I just wanted to tell everyone what happened to me. Nobody wanted to know what happened to me, because none of these men knew what to do with that, and the Shador actually turned out to be hugely symbolic for rape and sexual assault, because no, you know... It's, that injury just disappears. Once your physical wounds heal, it disappears. I mean, if you lose a leg, you know, or you have a scar from where you took shrapnel or whatever, you, you have a physical wound you can show people. But what are you going to do? Pull out the doctor's report from the rape examination to show them your, you know, your internal bleeding and tearing and, and everything? What do, you, what do you do when the bruises heal? I mean, you could see bruise marks from, from their fingers right across my body, my breast, everything, where they literally tried to rip my breast off my body. And now, when I, when I walk around today, people don't see those wounds, and they don't need to. But what I've learned about sexual assault is that it just disappears with you, and all you have is your word. You know, mm-hmm. people can choose to believe you or not believe you. So, the, I don't need to relive my assault every day of my life. I made my peace with it. I've never been angry about it. I'm, I'm very grateful that I got to live through it. That's my overriding thing when I think about what happened to me in Egypt is I sometimes still can't believe that I am here. And I'm, I, I honestly, too, the first few weeks at home, I was almost euphoric because I, was, I could see my children. I mean, the first few days in hospital were not fun because I missed my daughter's first step and things like that. I just wanted to get home. I felt like I'd been put in another prison. But, um, but honestly, you know, and of course, I don't want to pretend that it was easy. It's not easy. I still, um, it's still not easy. And that's the thing about sexual assault versus, um, something else, you know, are you going to pretend that you're never, I'm never going to be with my husband and have him touch me. And that's going to remind me, I, you know, and I have to really, if I'm really brutally honest about it, I'd rather like, sometimes I just rather not be touched, you know, Mm -hmm. because I'm never going to forget what it was like to be touched like that. And now, you know, if I'm not in the mood and my husband wants to sort of persuade me, that's a very thin line between persuasion and taking me right back to that square. Sure, sure. You know, it's not like, you know, normally you said, oh, you're not in the mood or whatever. You know, you think you can be talked into it. And sometimes I still can. But I, at least I have, my, my husband has grown up enough and I have the benefit of a strong relationship. And I was... Older When it happened to me, I don't, if, you know, if you're a kid and you don't have any of those things and you're trying to build something from you, I imagine it would be harder. But, you know, my husband has to be big enough to take it where I say to him, you know what, it's just, I just can't do this right now. And he, that's all I have to say. And he understands. But so you do live with it for the rest of your life. But for me, like that's a small price to pay. A year later, I got breast cancer. And in some ways that was even more frightening. You know so I I can if that's the my price I can pay that I'm I can take it I got to live
2: Well that that's the remarkable thing about this and and the fact that you can so you know eloquently describe it in and with the emotion still intact to share with our listeners in a way that they they they're you know they're going to be inspired by you and and I and I know for a fact there are millions of women that have have dealt with uh assault in in, the, in all different forms and, and that look to you for guidance and for help. And oh, yeah. so as you started climbing out of that space and, and when did you start feeling your strength and your power come back to you?
3: Um, that's a very good question. I'll tell you a funny story. The week before I was uh, attacked in Tahrir Square, um, I was in Egypt and we got detained coming from Alexandria back into Cairo and uh, we spent the night in interrogation cells in the in a Mukhabarat prison intelligence prison, and um I was very, very sick from dehydration. I had massive dehydration, and Marcus, you will appreciate this. you know, they were doing the whole Egyptian thing that they that no doubt we helped them learn and put right. us in stress positions and all the rest of it. and I at one point tried to put my head down, and the guy's like, "No, no, 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 you know, uh, stand up, stand up," and I just vomited all over his feet. At that point. And then, of course, they got the medic, and they're forcing medicine down my throat. And I'm thinking, Jesus, I don't know what they're giving me. Like, I don't want to take this. I keep saying, no, no, I feel much better now. And they forced (laughs) this medicine down my throat. So then I vomit. You know, by the time they got me into the cell for interrogation, uh, the guy's trying to mess with my mind, saying, hey, Laura, you want to go to the hospital? You feel bad? You know, all this stuff. And I just started vomiting all over the desk and the chair. Anyway, they eventually put me in some... um, filthy little office and stabbed a needle in my arm and uh, and got some bag with an ivy and just stabbed the other side of the bag and i passed out you know and and uh, woke up um the next i don't know how many hours later with scabies by the way which i gave to my daughter at the airport uh, when oh i got my home so gosh. i didn't know any better
0: but when i came home. in
3: dc and went through customs i had a customs officer who sold, um you know, the stamps and stuff in my passport and said, what do you do, standard question. And I said, oh, I'm a journalist. And he said, oh, I, I hate the media. And I said, okay, fine. I, who do you work for 60 Minutes? Oh, I hate that show, too. He's <laughs> very grumpy. And would you believe, a week later, I'm standing in the line, same flight, British Airways, from Cairo uh, to Dallas and I look at, at the... Customs officer ahead of me, and I said to my producer, "You're not going to believe this, but this is the same guy I had last Saturday night when we flew back from prison." I said, and he hates journalists and he hates 60 Minutes. Oh my <laughs> so, gosh! So we, walk, I go, I walk up to them, and you know he starts looking at my passport, and I can't help myself. I'm like, "Sir, you know." I said, would you believe it? I said, I think I had you a week ago. And so he flicks through the pages and he finds his stamp, which has his badge number written on it, and he says, well, look at that. Yes, you did. I said, do you still hate 60 Minutes? And he's like, he's like, yes. And I said, well, you know, I was just gang raped by a mob and I survived and I did it. So doing my job as a journalist, do you think you could watch from now on just for me? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> he
3: <just doesn't> oh. <laughs> think this menu. I don't awesome. think you
2: knew what to say I mean, yeah, how can you know what to say I
1: love
2: it I love it I love it I think it
3: comes back it comes back fast
2: that's cool and that's that's the one thing that I think I probably think... the nicest guy in the world now forever. Yeah, oh, I hope so, so. if just, not you know. if we ever run into him we'll, we'll tune him yeah. up for you uh, the, the the one thing is really amazing is that you know how prevalent uh, sexual assault is, in, in not only over in Middle Eastern countries, but we're also finding out on college campuses here in America, uh, other cultures, you know, that are male dominated. What what is you know as you move forward with this and and become an advocate and trying to help people in this, what what are you seeing? As some of the biggest challenges and problems out there with with young women or old women or or, or you know middle aged women, whatever of, of them, their challenge is to come back to to get that never quit mindset and to to grow uh, in in a place where they can actually you know come back stronger than before in it.
3: Well, the first thing is, and the most important thing to say is, sexual assault affects men as much, maybe not as much, but it definitely affects men and women. There's no distinction here. And I think that's so important because although most of the letters I I got that talked about being raped were from women, there were many that I got from men. And I think we shouldn't forget them or leave them out of the conversation because how much harder is it for a young boy or a young man or an older man, for that matter, to admit that they were, were raped? And I will tell you, when I went to um, Kansas City, Missouri, to, do, to, to speak about sexual assault for, for their organization in there, they have a great organization to counter sexual assault and, and abuse of women and children and men, and I went into their treatment rooms where they, ha- they keep the kids on their own and they get them to write in a word bubble words that represent how they're feeling. And then they put these bubbles on the wall so that when the kids come in, even though they're alone, they can read what other kids have put in their word bubbles on the wall. And the one that really made me cry when I was there was the one that said, am I the only one? Oh, wow. And it was a little boy who was raped by his older brother for, you know, four or five years growing up. And, um, and I think, so for me, you know, my sexual assault had nothing to do with being in the Middle East. Yes, at that time, it happened to be that I was in the Middle East. And and, and, it, was, uh, and it, it was, for me, it was something that was orchestrated and planned, and it was meant to send a message. But sexual assault happens in every culture, in every part of the world. And, uh, and I think that we we're not even coming close to you. People said, well, it's so amazing you went on TV to talk about it. I never thought of that as amazing. I think it's amazing that... There's a need for that and that that's such a big deal. How can that be such a big deal in this day and age? Um, I mean, for me, it's a gift that I'm able to help anyone because so many people have said, when I heard your interview or when I read about it, I told my wife for the first time about when I was raped or I told my mother and my husband, you know, and so if I can help people get to that, then I'm very, then that means a lot to me. And I actually, I, I, I hold on to every one of those accounts. Um, because I don't take any of them for granted. But I just think you know, that what we can really do about this, it, no child should have to suffer that kind of abuse, no adult either. But how do you grow up and begin to have loving, physical, sexual relationships that are normal with people when your only experience of it has been that horrific and terrible? I mean, that's just the worst for me and i think that's a, an, an enormous problem that is is as much as we try and say that we have recognized it and we deal with it we really we really don't and we don't equip um these children for the fact we you, you know we, let's not pretend that getting over it over it means that you let it go you leave it behind and you never think about it again it doesn't mean that it means getting to a place where you can have a healthy sexual relationship within the context and the framework of this trigger, which is that however, you know, however you were raped, whatever it was about that situation, there's going to be another situation that triggers it. I've learned that. I didn't know that. I thought when I went back to work, well, I've dealt with this, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm honest with myself. I confronted it. I told my husband in great detail everything they did to me so that he could be part of it. You know, we're mature uh, adults <laughs> in theory, I'm more mature <laughs> than he is, obviously. <laughs> obviously. I, I, I thought I checked all the boxes. I'm smart. I know how to deal with this stuff. But I didn't because I didn't know what it meant to live with it long term. And to understand, we, you don't erase these things. You have to live with them. And so you have to work out how to live with them. It, and how do you do them? that? Is, I, I it, can, is it through open so, well, dialogue? Well, i tell you or? how you do that. I got this from a South African woman who survived a terrible assault where they actually, after they raped her, gutted her and slit her throat. And how she survived is unbelievable. She said at her trial, they took so much from me, they didn't deserve everything. I was going to decide how much they got to keep, right? Right. And that's what you have to decide every day of your life. How much are you going to give them? Are you going to live every day of your life thinking about it and in fear? Are you never going to have great sex again because every time someone touches you, you're going to give in to that? How much do they deserve? They only deserve as much as you can't take back. Because I'm going to spend every, uh, every day of my life that I'm happy and that I don't think about this and that I live beyond it, I'm taking back from them. And they don't deserve to have any more then I absolutely have to give
2: them. Wow. Well, I mean that's 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 absolutely phenomenal. The challenge is, is we we're so afraid to openly discuss this, you know, this type I, I, of violence. It's, it's the craziest thing because yeah.
1: she and I will talk about it, or we're talking about it right now. But where does that break down? Where does it stop being like, hey, this this. We're sick and tired of this to where it gets lost in trans. That's the, the crazy part of it. I don't even know the answer to that. Well, the predators
2: that are out there, right? Whether it's uh you know, even a predator knows where not to hunt. That's not true. Not with human beings at all. I, I no, mean, what
1: well, that a human being can be conditioned, right? I mean, to to a, to a fo- and to a point to where if they can't, then then and then there's no hope for them. Then there's only one way to do one thing to do to that person to get rid of them. And that's the same way you do with a with a predator. Once it comes in and 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 causes all that chaos, man, you you got to get you got to put them down. Well,
2: I mean, that's the you know. You know the, how I feel about people oh, who are women, man. Oh I don't, brother, like, dude, I, will, I mean, I,
1: don't, <laughs> I mean, this whole interview, I was just getting pissed. <laughs> you know, what I mean? you should have,
2: Laura, you should have seen mean, him.
1: Like he was fuming over there, dude, right I don't, now. I don't get mad at anything. I mean, I don't ever lose my cool, not even in combat, man. But I will go high order if I see somebody hurting a woman, man. I mean, I was just date. I was like, I hope you remember the, the the guy's faces because, I mean, I could scrape them off for you.
0: <laughs> I was so pissed. You, here, man. you know what
3: the thing is for me, though, is that I don't even care. I couldn't care less. Those guys don't even exist for me.
2: Good. You awesome. know, the only
3: thing I care about is not being in a position where they can do it again. And right. that's, you know, it's different for, say, you know, a child that's in a family where an uncle or a stepfather or, or you know, a stepmother, for that matter, whoever it happens to be, is assaulting them over and over and over again. There you need a physical intervention to save them from that experience. But whether you put that person on trial, kill them, or let them go, that child still has to learn how to live with that sexual assault and that memory and that rape and and that humility and, and that violence and whatever it happens to be, that fear. They still have to live with that. You never... You know, you never get a free pass. No one ever says to you, Oh, okay, here. Here's the death penalty for this guy. Or well, wait, let me put a bullet in his head. Here you go. You're done. Now you're 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 It doesn't free. end it. Even if even if Marcus, you could line him up in front of me and offer, you know, for me to watch them each one of them being killed. I have no interest in that. I couldn't care less. It's not that I want them dead or not want them dead. I don't want to apply any political you know, overtones to this at all. It's got nothing to do with it for me. They don't exist for me. They're not important enough. That's the most empowering thing.
1: That's the most empowering thing about you, and that's as it should be. My point is, and uh, this is just how I fundamentally believe because of how I grew up and the way I watched animals and stuff like that, but you have somebody who has gone to that deep. You can't tell me that the victim of that, they're like, well, they'll, they'll forget eventually. No, they don't. So the person who does that, they don't forget either. All right, they just don't forget that. And if they've gotten to a point to where that doesn't affect them as it affected the victim,
2: the morality is exactly. Then that saying.
1: predator has has, has a pro, is like has rabies. I mean, once that's ingrained in there, and they also know how deep down they can go, and whatever triggered it the first time, we're like oh, yeah, that, then it had been triggered again. It's those guys when we talk about like if you quit one time, man, that's in you. you made it through the something the second time, you didn't get tested. Right. All right, and it's 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 those those that works. That's a drug, man. That that violence it's power. It's power. power. Is that's the, violence, that's a, it's yeah. the ultimate drug.
2: Well, what I love about what what she's saying though is she's not going to allow. Just, that, no, no, no. You know? uh, yeah, no, no and, and I'm not trying to say that. that's the yeah, true yeah. power right there.
1: I mean, absolutely. That's what yeah. I commend her on all that. That's uh, well, well, I guess I was talking about me. I you, should, you shouldn't no, be talking no, about no, me you, on you, no, here. No, it's obvious. No,
2: it's obvious that you're you're making a reaction, and and I felt the same thing. I was like, man, I would you know love to you know come to her her you know, rescue. Like, yeah, and, no, no, no. I don't see it like that. Is that's a fulfillment of my own desire my own my own need to want to you know take control or power of of my pain inside for her pain and and she what's what's amazing about her is she she's not feeling that man she's empowered by not even allowing I, I them to to yeah. control her emotionally physically anything it's it's, it's amazing still,
1: it's it's my belief in what how, what a woman's how great a, a woman is on this planet right and the fact that those animals were doing that Triggered the animal in me it, as a protection because I I know her you know and it's yeah. just overall the woman so you think that they could get that buck wild and savage man imagine that kind of rage and somebody like me going at them that's well, that's no, what I, that's I, what's I going on is. the
2: other side of this microphone dude I it, mean and I, the question I got is <laughs> it does, God, dude, oh, does, well what? here's an interesting question let me well, let me
3: I would say I would say that if someone did that to one of my children. Or anything close to that or anything remotely affiliated with that or something that might even be vaguely perceived as that. I would not, I would not be able to take the high road. I would want to chop them up into little pieces and it would have to be painful because if they didn't truly suffer, I would never feel better about it.
2: And I and we love you for that, and that that's exactly what he's saying there. And uh, would you? Uh, yeah, yeah, you're I mean, expecting me to say something oh, that's
1: contrary to the point. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I mean and, and what I was pointing with that is like she's perfectly capable of everything. I am the only thing that I bring to that is the power well, that that a, that a male uh, has, well, well, right? And that I, strength, and then the rage to drive I, it. And I, that's I, that's my look. I was just looking at it from the perspective of. Uh, I don't like that. Yeah, no, no, God. and she's
2: saying the same thing too. <laughs> We're all on yeah, that thing. Yeah. But what what's amazing to me and what's unique about post traumatic stress is 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 to learn how to find the long term power in that and to, you know, not to erase but ultimately to take the experience and 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 utilize it in a way that allows you to function in a healthy happy way, to find the joy and the passion and the love of life whether it's through intimacy or it's through the love of your children, whatever. I mean, and, and what, what the, I
3: ask the real thing, the real power. If I could give people one thing, when something terrible happens to you, every time you relive it or you experience some kind of pain from it, or you're depressed, you don't want to get a bit, whatever it happens to be. The only question you have to ask yourself is how much do they get? Do they get all of you? Do they get the rest of your life? Like I have, you know, I, I know someone who was bullied in school many years ago and is still struggling with it. And my only question to that person is, how much do you give them? Are you, do they really get to have the rest of your life? Are they worth that? And that's, that's, that's the barometer that, you, that picks you up because it's not about, oh, something terrible happened to me. I have a right to feel sorry for myself or I have a right to be damaged or I have a right to be traumatized. You know, for me, life is for living. It's not for weeping into my beer. If I'm getting drunk, it's not to drown my sorrows. It's, it's uh, you know, it's for, for it's joy for, uh, because I want to have fun. I don't, I don't want to need all those crutches. It's, what, what I want to do is I want to live every single day because I know it's not forever. And I know that it can go, you know, I know how fast it can go. And uh, what I want to know is how much do they deserve? You... When people do that to you, you lose control, right? You're not in control of what they're doing to you and what they're taking from you. But you are in control of how much you give them. So if you're going to give them the rest of your life, that's on you. You know what I mean? That's the way I look at it. That's on me. And I understand. I've been given a lot of, of things that have helped me, that helped me have the strength to do that. I I was very grounded. My parents were very grounded. You know, when I came home crying from school, my mother would say, the problem with you, my girls, you got your bladder behind your bloody eyeball. You know, (laughs) you got to toughen up. And when someone hit me at school, my brother, my sister said, would you hit them back? You know, so I I, I grew up in a a fairly tough environment in Africa. When people saw me, you know, showing up and uh, saying, I want to go to Afghanistan to the war, they thought, oh, Barbie's going to war. Yeah, this is going to be funny. But I grew up in Africa going into the bush with my friends who were game rangers where we would put a pack on and to get water. We would dig in the ground. You didn't have to add coffee because the water you were drinking was black. You know, mm-hmm. but if you dug deep enough, it was clean. So it's, I didn't have a, a closeted upbringing. I didn't have the toughest upbringing in the world. I know people have had it much worse. But my thing is, you know, how much am I going to give them? I can... I can cry about what happened to me for the rest of my life. I can tell people the worst story and everyone's going to feel sorry for me. And then what? And would I get a badge? <laughs> what? So are you going to give me? You're going to Here's, give me medal th- a, here's you know? the,
1: another thing that's that's exceptional about, about you and your husband and the, the relationship. And once you try to incorporate your spouse back into, I would imagine how hard, and stop me if I'm going down the wrong path on this, being raped, right? And because of... Well, I would imagine well, what's in my head if I was dealing with my wife and she, that had happened to her. And then there's those levels she's talking about, about giving not only back to the person who did this, but to her husband. So what if it was one of the deals where, you know, I, I used to like my wife, I like to tear her shirt off sometimes. When we, and then but you you're, you're sitting on that and you're like, I, I want to love my husband and do everything that we used to do. But the stuff that happened to me, some of it fell in the category of. My Romance Life, right? And then it drug me straight through that. And I think that's the worst thing about sexual assault, man, is it drags something that's so wonderful to most people. And that's why these bitches are damn nasty, dude. God, kill everyone. Anyways, they drag that emotional side into the hell. And then coming back out of that, and the one thing that humans love to do is bond with other humans, and, and especially the ones we love, is show them in a certain way. And if that's been somehow tampered with or damaged in some way, it's really... I would imagine it's just even talking about it is, is and getting that out of there has got to be difficult. But then dealing with yourself on top of dealing with your with with your husband, and, and that just goes to show how amazing. That I just totally no, uh,
2: you're 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 right on point, and it's a great question to put to Laura. I mean, when you rebuild that intimacy with your husband, it's together again. It, it's it's together. like start, Starting over, it's, right? It's it, through well, that that focus of the, love.
3: There's two parts. There's for me. There's two parts to that. One is that I quickly realized that night that no one understood what had happened to me, and I needed my boss to understand. So what I did is I, I asked my producer, Max McClellan, who's one of my greatest friends in the whole world, I said, I need you to clear, do two things for me. One, clear the room, and two, get Joe on the phone. And, I, and when I got Joe on the phone, I said to him, I want you to get a pen and paper and listen to everything I'm going to tell you, Take notes, pay attention, and then hang up and call my boss. I didn't. I wasn't able to tell my boss um, those intimate, physical, sexual details that were so embarrassing and, and humiliating. I, but I could tell them to my husband. And for my husband, at that, you know, for his part, his training kicked in. Marcus, that's you know, that's what what he kind of shares with you in a way. At that moment, he's on autopilot. And once he'd done that, he then called back and told my producer. You've got to do something for me. She's got to take, you know, her clothes off, and you have to photograph her, her injury. And
0: yeah. he
3: said, I, I can't do it. Um, I'm sorry. And, and my husband said to him, um, this isn't about you. It's about her. She needs you. She needs that evidence. She needs those photographs taken. You've got to be like a doctor. Go Put your mind in another place, and you have to do this for her. And, and so, you know, he did it. And that was hard on everybody, but I think it was harder on them in some ways than me because I had no, I had nothing left at that point. Right. And, um, and I understood, my husband told me, but so he was in training mode, you know, and, and it was only a while later where he really went into, where it became much harder for him, I think, because I thought, okay, well, he's dealt with this and he's processed it and he's good, right? But he, that girl that went to Egypt never came back. Someone else came back. There might be traces of that person, but this is somebody else. So you almost have to relearn that, and you have to be strong enough and have a good enough relationship for that to happen. And that's also where being older happens, you know. And maybe if we didn't have kids and so much holding us together, maybe we wouldn't have made it. Because um, certainly it wasn't easy. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend. oh, we have the greatest, you know, uh, marriage in the history of marriages, and we never had times where I wanted. And put a machete in the middle of his skull. <laughs> you know, I mean, that happens.
0: <laughs>
1: South Africans are cut that, you, man. That's what happens when cut you meet a
3: woman from Africa. They, they plot the most gruesome death instead of just poisoning you. But, you know, on the, on the flip side of that, the funny part of it is I remember a couple weeks after Egypt, my husband badgering me to sleep with him. And my, I, eventually I looked at him and I said, for God's sake, I was gang raped by a mob. I get a free pass for a, <laughs> another week. <laughs> or at least another couple days. You know? That's
2: awesome. I bet that
1: brought some levity to the entire moment, right? Oh, for well, sure. The thing about it is, and I, from, I mean, just listening to you talk, sometimes when you go down deep into a rabbit's hole by yourself, who comes out is obviously different. And then. It's 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 holding on to those little pieces of who you were that made you great that that allow you to retrain yourself to love your husband and and, and love what you continue to do. And now that and the way I look at it and the way we kinda talk about it is now you've seen what you're capable of in a way, how far you can go before they have to before they can kill you. I mean, and I've been down that road too, and once you find that spot and once you know most people don't know that. You're not supposed to know how far you can go before they when you're in a moment of death, you're supposed to die. And those that have walked back from it, man, you kind of have a different perspective on everything. It puts everything in perspective. And like we, we were talking about earlier, man, it's those building blocks of what's the most important part of, of my life. And everyone, obviously that's different in everybody's life as well. But uh, you can get back to the place you were when you went down that rabbit's hole. And, and then when you pass it up, you can just look to the side and go, I went down it. I don't need to go down it again kind of deal. And I'm stronger f- it. And, and, and yeah, that remembering part, you're right. I mean, why, and why would you want to, you don't forget stuff like that. And for a reason I would think, man, it's just because that's that you, can, you it's an edge that you have knowing that there is a dark side at the end of that road. And, and uh, if I had to, I could go down it again. You know, if I got thrown down that damn thing again, I could take it. But uh, I, you know, maybe we maybe we won't go down. It.
2: <laughs> <You know? laughs> as, we, least, as we get older, you know what I'm yeah. talking about, it?
1: or maybe we go with some little a uh, little a buddy, <laughs> a buddy next time. <laughs> well, well, you know,
3: well, the thing for me, I always thought when that you know that moment came that I was somehow going to be able to fight my way out of it or talk my way out of it or whatever, right? I, I really did in my head. I was a Charlie's Angel and. I, you know, some way I'd be able to fly out of it. But I think what I realized now, you know, if I'm home and, and with my kids sleeping and something wakes me up, now I'm thinking through it, you know, I'm thinking, okay, wait, what if I can't, like, where's my phone? How far away is my phone from me? Like, where's, where's my husband? You know, is he fast asleep? Is he awake? It's that kind of thing. And I, and I often, uh, I take myself through all the steps now to the worst outcome, whereas before I might have been counting on, you know, counting on good luck or counting on it working out. Now I know, shit, it might not work out. <laughs> hey, hey
1: Laura, I just want to point. does uh, This coming you know? from from a team guy perspective, okay? So check this out. When you used to think you were a Charlie's Angel, what you were you thought you were the Charlie's Angel on the TV that everything went well. Well now you get to see what's behind making a Charlie's Angel, yeah. right? Well, you know what I mean? Well, so that real, meticulous yeah. nature you have when you get up or you hear something—that's everything I roll through in my head, and that's not it, man. That's just being retrained as, and that's that's an advantage now that you have that. I mean, that's a spidey sense or the hair on the back of your head neck that you re- uh, you are a charlie's angel now because now you have all the stuff inside of you that comes with that title is is did I, did yeah, you're, that you're spot on yeah, right mean, so i always thought you were one anyways that's crazy you should say that and now i mean carl i mean I, hey look it's awesome you've earned it right yeah. awesome man i and and coming out better on the other side that's that's everything a charlie's angel was in my mind
3: well i'm telling you a year later when i got the phone call that i had breast cancer. When my doctor told me that, I felt like I I remember years ago covering a story in South Africa with this 19-year-old girl who threw herself out of a building and she was pregnant. And I had to watch her stomach with this baby in it while they were trying to save her life. And on her way down, she hit all the windows that were open and, you know, balconies and things like that. And so there were chunks of her um, that were gone. And I remember feeling like I had I remember thinking of her and feeling like I was, had fallen out of a window from that building and that I was leaving chunks of me on the way down, and I was reaching for all the things. You know, when Egypt happened, I reached for things I could find them. Stay on your feet, right? Keep breathing. There were things I could do, but when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I was reaching, and all I got was air, and I kept falling and falling and falling, and, and when I hit the bottom, I was just in a sea of panic. And that was a whole nother kind of fight and a different kind of strength. And I, you know, I I phoned my sister one day from outside the hospital where I was having radiation. And I said to her, I keep meeting these people and they keep telling me they've given up sugar and they've gone vegan. And how important it is to have a positive attitude because attitude is as much about, you know, recovery as anything else. And uh, and I said to her, and I don't don't feel positive and I'm freaking depressed. And I don't want to, I don't know how to give up sugar. I drink Bailey's coffee every morning and do it doesn't without Bailey. <laughs> I'm, I'm failing on, on every front of survival here. I've never given up cheese. I don't want to be a vegan. And I don't want to be positive about having cancer. Everything and, about and, that you know, says it
1: just makes me negative. How can it be a positive?
3: <laughs> oh, my. And I tell you that, and, you know, I didn't feel like anything I'd been through made it better. It was hard. It was hard, and it took a long time to get rid of that fear of what's inside. What is inside me now? Do I have do I have molecules that these doctors are missing? You know, um, and and that that was a whole other kind of struggle. That in some ways uh, in some ways was harder than coming back from Egypt, where I can say that's on them. That's on those assholes. You know what I mean? It's like I, I could see that very clearly, and, and that's who they are. But this now is something I can't, I don't have control over fire. there are small things I can do, but essentially, you know, my, something else is going to decide whether this cancer comes back or not or whether they get it all or whether it's spread to my lymph nodes or, you know, those are things that just scared the, the living crap out of me, I got to be honest.
1: We got a buddy you need to
2: meet. Yeah, <laughs> Justin, Leg. Justin Leg. I yeah. mean, he's, he's he getting, got leukemia God, in the dang. teams, bone marrow transplant. It, it mean, went wrong. He got a double lung transplant, and he's fighting every day for his life ever since. I mean, and God. it's and we just had him on. But you know, Laura, we we if if you're willing, uh, we've taken up a, a lot of your day today. We're so it was, appreciative. It was great. And I mean, that thank was you so much. I mean, such a powerful display for our listeners to really understand the never quit mindset if you if you want to come back again in the future and tell us how you made it back from cancer we would love to have you but for right now we're gonna we're gonna end it here and just thank you so much for being you and and, and for, yeah, for I, sharing with our our listeners that was awesome I just
1: love hearing your voice again and talking to you and, and i'm I'm glad everything's where it's supposed to be for you now, and I hope, I mean, the best, best, like, you got me so fired up during this interview, girl. Well, the funny part
3: for your viewers, imagine I'm sitting on a stool in my son's closet, surrounded by little boy's clothes. And because it was the only place where I could hide from my children so we could have this conversation without being Interrupted four thousand times. Oh, no, <laughs> it's, the
2: right.
1: yeah. it's the perfect spot. It's the
2: perfect spot, and we appreciate it. It just it. Yeah, it
1: adds that to the to the interview.
2: Yes, it does. <laughs> well, God bless you, Laura, and thank you so much.
3: All right, thanks for having me on. Um, I appreciate it, and uh, and it was nice to talk to you again, Marcus. You guys take care.
1: Yes, ma'am. Take you care. Bye, bye.
2: Well, I'll tell you, there aren't many times, brother, when when I hear people tell stories of their survival or stories of their fight or stories where that fear is present, that terror that really get me inside. But listening to hers, Marcus, man, that that, that was one of the most powerful stories I've ever heard.
0: Sure.
1: I mean, she... <laughs> How do how do you say it, or you don't say it? Where it's a she can deliver that in a way that she has because that journalistic back the way she covers stuff and can explain things that hit you to the core. And and I don't want to tell you something, man. know and other women who are out there trying to explain something that happened to you, and if it it doesn't matter if it's as severe as what happened to her, or, or, or that, that's just well, bad sexual news, abuse man, and uh, trauma
2: domain. is substantial. and It can't happening. even make sense. <laughs> well, you get fired up, and and that's amazing. And and you know, I think. What's what? What was really amazing about her for me is that she, you know, so many people. You can get angry. Look, what our natural pre, preset is: let's get angry and start killing all those human beings, right? For her, it's like she's not even going to give them no, their minds, their anything. Because we weren't in that situation, no. So this no. is our
1: instinct, and I mean, she get fired. I mean, it's so it's that. That instinct for survival that pushes you through, and then that one but little the thing long in your
2: head—survival is what is is unbelievable to me. And,
1: I mean, our mental capacity to that's overcome overcome awesome. all that, and then she was healing up, is and then get hit by cancer, brother. I'm, I mean, that's she's, a double whammy. Because at least, I mean, at if least, she the yeah, if she's on TV saying something, listen. Right. Oh, um, always. I mean, just pay attention to whatever in the heck she's reporting on, no matter what, because her
2: perspective is is pretty is pretty awesome. Pretty spot on. Yeah. I mean, you know what was really also very cool for me too was, you know, her recognition that developed. Re, she was a new person, right? She she you know she didn't lose all her ex- experience, but going through something that's significant like that, it reset her focus, her perception. Of herself,
1: right? Or and gave then her was, a perception she didn't have yet.
2: Exactly, and then from there, built on that, and re, you know, reconnecting with her husband, her children, her job, being able the to the goal is to cancer. rebuild
1: yourself back to the same person. But now you have that. I mean, that whatever it is you went down is a part of your life now.
2: So make it an asset.
1: Make it an asset. Learn everything you can from it, and then push forward. Because you're not you're not a victim, man. I mean, it was just kind of don't look at it like that. Never look at yourself like a victim. Always look at it like that. I, I was down at that point, and right. I learned this. I was bested, whatever it is. I'm I would never you know I was beaten, but I'm not down. I'm not out. And. That's what she was telling herself. I understand man. when she was going through all that. I was like, "Yep, I don't
2: know. <laughs> <laughs> no shit." That fear, that terror, yeah, man. All that, when they took
1: yeah. all of that you know away from you, and it made me, me too. You know, when those te- teammates started dying, and you start relying on yourself, when they start stripping you apart piece right. by piece, man, it's like all right, dragging you all the way down to that baseline we talked about until you get to where breathing is the most important thing. Anything else is just white noise.
2: Well, it was remarkable that you guys were able to share that together in that space like that. I mean you know, this, 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 she, she, she was so clear on it, you know, and and that was what the thing, I mean, her, the vividness. I love her, so
1: she's just up front, man. She's just uh, yeah, tech, she's tech awesome. Is, you know, straight She's up. awesome.
2: So listen, if you're out there and, and, and you have, have gone through the indignity of, of that type of abuse that she's gone through, or you've gone through cancer, or you've gone through something else that's unbelievably challenging in your life, you know, know this listen to what she said you can come back and you can come back with just a breath just find your breath find that moment take a deep breath realize you're alive
1: i mean that's all you came in this world with was a breath that's what she re-entered with and she's built herself all the way back to this point right now how successful she is
2: oh she's one of the greatest female make forget female male all that she's one of the greatest journalists that exists today and she delivers a perspective based on real world experience. And that's why she's so impressive to me. So I, I hope, as a listener out there, you've been, you've, you know, this, this interview will transform you once again and teach you that the never quit mindset is inside you. You can have it, you can pull it out. Just start by believing in yourself, search for that one breath and take that one foot forward. And you, too, will will survive. I know you will. So at the end of every show, we always say, hey, man, thank you for everything. We really appreciate it. If you want to learn more about what it is we do, please visit our website at teamneverquit.com forward slash podcast. You can listen to all these other great shows. I just want to say thank you to God. I want to say thank you to my parents, my brother specifically, my children. And I want to thank all those people that are fighting every single day after going through this stuff. And to know that, you know, we love you. We support you. We're here. Let us help you. So thank you.
1: I want to thank God for all of our women. I mean,
2: I I love you. And there's
1: men out there who will fight and die for each and every one of you, even if we don't know yet. Just know we exist. If you think for a second that we don't, we do. Just sometimes it takes us a while to find y'all. So thank y'all. We love you. and, And God bless them out.
2: We're out.